This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Recently, I was invited to be a guest speaker in a teaching methods class by a professor friend of mine. The topic was religion and how to work with students who are from various and diverse religious backgrounds. During one of the questions, I was talking about Asia, I believe specifically China. I was saying how many people in China are oftentimes not a single religion. It's perfectly okay to not be one thing in the land of three teachings. My impression is the students in the class found this idea of living within multiple religious traditions a tad confusing, as Western monotheistic traditions tend to extol an answer, as in the answer. If one is more right than the others, obviously you can't be two. So in the East, it's often perfectly fine to do practices from many Eastern traditions. In the West, people usually practice just one, but what about fully practicing one Eastern and one Western and rising to prominence in both? Today's conversation is with a man who has had his feet planted firmly in both the East and the West in Zen Buddhism and Jesuit Catholicism for many years. My guest is Father Robert Jinsen Kennedy Roshi, Jesuit priest and Zen Roshi. Robert Kennedy is one of several practicing Catholic men and women who are recognized by the Buddhist community as Zen teachers. He is a licensed psychoanalyst and professor emeritus of theology at St. Peter's University in Jersey City, New Jersey. As a Christian father, Kennedy has found meaning and deep reverence in the practice of Zen. He is active in interfaith work, teaching Zen to persons of all faiths, conducting retreats in the United States, Mexico, Ireland, and England. He studied Zen in Japan with Japanese master Yamada Roshi. He continued his study under Meizumi Roshi in Los Angeles and Bernard Glassman Roshi in New York. In 1997, he received Inca, the formal seal of approval from Glassman Roshi, and received the title of Roshi or Master. He holds doctorates in theology from the University of Ottawa and from St. Paul University in Ottawa, a master's in theology from Sophia University in Tokyo, and a doctor of ministry in psychology and clinical studies from Andover Newton in Boston. He is a graduate of the Blanton Peel Institute of Religion and Health in New York. Roshi Kennedy has written two books on Zen and Christianity, Zen Gifts to Christians and Zen Spirit, Christian Spirit. In 2017, Roshi Kennedy received two honorary doctorates, one from St. Peter's University and one from the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Without further delay, it is my pleasure to bring you my conversation with Father Robert Kennedy Roshi. (music) 
So perhaps we can start with you introducing yourself for just a moment, um, such as your, your many hats that you seem to wear in the world. Right. Well, uh, I'm a, a Jesuit priest, and uh, I uh, served here at St. Peter's University for many years, uh, teaching theology and uh, some Japanese language, at least to beginners. Uh, I uh, lived in Japan for eight years. I was ordained a priest in, in Tokyo. And... Uh, and then I realized there were other things that uh, interested me that I wanted very much to do. I um, studied Zen Buddhism. I learned about Zen uh, from uh, my years in Japan, and I pursued that. And then I also was interested in psychology. And so while I was teaching at the college, I also went back to graduate school and uh, got another uh, doctorate in psychology and worked uh, as a psychoanalyst. And in fact, I still do. I'm still active as a licensed psychoanalyst in New York State. So uh, these things kept me busy. I was interested in them. I uh, uh, tried to accomplish as much as I could in life. And, uh, and here I am now, as, uh, 84 years old. Fantastic. So you are a Jesuit priest, a yes. practicing psychoanalyst and what is your official title in zen is it roshi or sensei roshi no Excellent. i was a uh, sensei means teacher and roshi literally means old teacher or experienced teacher you know something like that uh, uh you know a teacher who is you know served for some years served well for some years something like that it's a, more of an honorific title Sensei means you're a teacher, and that's important because it means you can, you can make other teachers. In that sense, senseis uh, hold the future of Zen in their hands and in the choices they make of uh, making other people teachers of Zen. Excellent. So let's go way back really quick. So what made you want to be a Jesuit priest? Well, I went to a Jesuit high school, and this was 19... You know, 47 to 51 when I was in high school. And uh, the Catholic world then, before Vatican II, was quite different. There was a strong emphasis on religious life and the priesthood. Uh, there was a, a feeling that if you really wanted to serve God in the world, that the priesthood and religious life was the way to go. And, of course, uh, we didn't have the choices that uh, are available to young people today. Uh, no one is really thinking the way we did back in 1950. Uh, but at that time, many of us entered religious life, and uh, uh, the desire was to serve God in the world, uh, be, a, be of use in the world. And uh, I was one of those that uh, chose that path. So how did you wind up going to Japan? Take me through that transition, like out of high school and then leading you into Japanese society. Well, I chose the Jesuits because I knew them. I went to a Jesuit school and uh, I was touched by the uh, emphasis on education and uh, that it was a, a universal order. It wasn't like a local diocesan order of uh, priests or nuns. And uh, they uh, have a motto that the whole world is their house. 
that they don't just have a religious house of where they have a vow of stability. We almost have a vow of instability in the sense that we're ready to move and go anywhere. And all that appealed to my youthful imagination. And Japan was an extension of that. Uh, I heard the language was very difficult. I heard that the Japanese were not particularly open to Christianity. It was an opportunity for service where uh, people were needed at that time. Uh, and again, I was part of that uh, that culture that was interested in going as far as I could with the priesthood and religious life, and that would include missionary work. And Japan appealed to me as the place to go at that time. And this is and this is in post-war America as well, right? So the oh, yeah. the attitude towards Japan was quite a bit different, I would imagine, back then. Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, Japan was still recovering uh, from the war, uh, but the Japanese are very much themselves. You know, they. Uh, uh, confident in their own traditions and uh, they're very gracious to foreigners and they're very open to uh, to new ideas. There are many things that are quite the same. Um, uh, so, Japan is a stable, conservative uh, country, really. Right. So when you graduated from high school, you said it was 1951, right? Right. And then did you go right into your seminary training here in the United States? Yes, I did. I had two years in the Vichit, uh, and, uh, and then we had uh, two years of uh, uh, really poetry and rhetoric, um, humanistic studies, and then we had uh, three years of philosophical studies, and, uh, and then the question came up about where we would go, should we stay in the United States or should we go abroad? And it was at that time when I was 25 years old that I volunteered for Japan. And was this in like 1957, 1958? 1958. Excellent. And when I got there, I was put into a language school for two years. Uh, the Jesuits are very good in this, that uh, to work in Japan, we have to uh, speak Japanese and uh, relatively fluently uh, in Japanese. And I remember uh, one Jesuit experience telling me that we shouldn't wander around with a 500-word vocabulary. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, keep studying. It's a lifelong enterprise if you stay in Japan, that you keep studying the language and be good at it. So you can teach in school so that you can represent uh the church and the society uh, in the best way possible. So you wind up in Japan and you are studying the language and you're there for a couple years. So tell me about your what you first remember about when you found Zen. When I found Zen, well, that was uh, somewhat later on. I was so busy when I was in Japan for those years and I was still very young and uh, um, for example, I went. I was, I was sent to a high school in Kobe, a Jesuit high school there, and I had two years of uh, teaching English and uh, coaching baseball. And uh, it's it's odd to think that uh, the baseball team and coaching them, we won two championships, both the high school and the middle school won championships, and uh, this put me in intimate 
close contact uh, with the Japanese. Uh, I wasn't wasn't just uh, studying about them, but living with them, working with them, and uh, winning with them uh, was a wonderful experience, and I'm still close to those uh, men. Now they were just uh, 16, 17, 15 when I uh, knew them. Now they're all retired businessmen. Uh, but we're still, uh, we still talk to one another. We uh, visit one another. I've been to Japan a couple of times. They've been to the States. Uh, we correspond now and then. And it was through baseball that I had my closest uh, contact, an enduring contact with the Japanese. And then I went on for four years of theology in preparation for the priesthood. And uh, uh, I was ordained in Tokyo in 1965. And I still had not gotten into Zen or Buddhism at all. I was so busy learning the language and, uh, and teaching and uh, Buddhism was a still away, a step away. It was only when I got back into the States, when I came back to the States for graduate studies, that uh, I knew there's something that I missed. And I also had an experience, a psychological uh, growth, that uh, suddenly made Buddhism important, a question that I uh, felt I had to pursue. And... Uh, and then after I finished my graduate studies and was teaching at St. Peter's for a few years on my first sabbatical, I went back to Japan. I had been sitting Buddhism now alone myself for some years, but then I went back to Japan to learn how to do it correctly and to immerse myself in that uh, Buddhist civilization. So it was my second trip to Japan that uh, was when I went to Zen. Which year was this? Uh, the second that trip. That was uh, 1976 when I went back to Japan. And at that time, I, he was introduced by the Jesuits to Yamada Roshi, a, uh, a wonderful uh, Zen teacher who knew about us. His son had uh, been a student at one of our high schools. And uh, he was a, a, a very fine man, a fine human being, and uh, he exemplified the very best, as far as I was concerned, in Zen Buddhism. And he was open to Christians. Many priests and nuns were going to him for uh, instruction and uh, in Zen practice. And uh, I joined them, and uh, of course that gave me a big, a big uh, boost in my interest and uh, capacity for Zen. And then when I came back to the States, I uh, studied with Yamada Roshi in Los Angeles for a couple of years. And then uh, in New York, finally, with Glassman Roshi. And uh, he was the one who made me a teacher himself. So whenever we're talking about Glassman Roshi, this is Bernie Glassman, correct? Right, right. Excellent. So I'm so curious about... Um, you being a Jesuit priest and almost being encouraged to pursue uh, learning about Zen, were your, um, you know, the people that were above you in the Jesuit order, were they encouraging of this path that you were interested in? Oh, yes. Uh, there were two uh, major uh, superiors who mentioned specifically that uh, what I was doing was in the highest traditions of the Jesuits and of what we are, the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits, and they were completely uh, positive about it. 
that we should, uh, this interreligious dialogue was uh, really essential to uh, Catholic life. Not that every Catholic has to do it, but that there has to be always in Catholicism this uh, openness to other faiths and cooperation with them, uh, seeing the, the good that they have, seeing the truth that they have, and supporting that truth that they have, and even practicing that truth that they have. Uh, walk in their shoes so that we can really understand them. So do you think uh, Do you think being a Jesuit opened you up to Zen in ways that other Christian uh, practices or denominations would not? Oh, I think so, certainly. It was the Jesuits who educated me and sent me to Japan. It was the Jesuits who introduced me to Yamada Roshi when they knew that this is what I wanted to pursue. And uh, they've encouraged me. I've never had a word of uh, criticism or an objection in all the years that I have worked now as a Zen teacher. Uh, I, I don't know whether other denominations would have done that or not, but I mean, the Jesuits certainly did. Excellent. So I want to talk a little bit about practice. So how does Zen inspire your Christianity? How does your Christianity inspire your Zen? So Basically, what do the two enable you to do within the other one? Well, first of all, I don't know how Zen, uh, whether Zen is all that interested in Catholicism. They have their own tradition, and I don't know what they've learned from us. Uh, I just know they were very gracious to me. You know, I reached out to them, and they were very uh, helpful uh, to me always. Um, what did they do for me? Well, they gave me a, a whole other way of approaching the mystery of life and the mystery of God. Uh, Catholicism is a true way, but there is truth in other faiths too. And it was the truth of, uh, of Zen uh, that touched me. It's not that these things were not in Catholicism. But I think there were things that were highlighted more in Zen and uh, stressed more, and uh, where Zen seemed to have more teachers ready to discuss these aspects of uh, faith. Uh, and all that helped me tremendously. I think it helped me to be a better Catholic and a better uh, Jesuit. Uh, so what kind of questions do you see the two trying to ask? Like, because... They're probably trying to ask different things. So what do you think that uh, Catholicism is seeking to address, and what do you think Zen is seeking to address? Well, Catholicism is a, uh, a Semitic religion. It comes directly, uh, rests on the shoulders of the, of the Jews. Um, it is a, a religion of uh, uh, the worship and uh, love of God and humanity. Um, what do I want to say here? It is what the Buddhists would call a uh, primarily a vertical religion. The first commandment is to love God with your whole mind and heart and soul. And, uh, of course, the second commandment, uh, taken from the Jews, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes these are seen as one commandment with two aspects. 
uh, Zen is much more of a horizontal religion. It just uh, it does not say anything about God. It does not deny God. Then people uh, are not uh, atheists. They're not denying the existence of God, but they don't attend to it. Uh, just as if you took a course in physics, you would not expect the teacher to say that God made the world. You're just doing physics. And so, too, in Zen, uh, they don't speak about uh, God. They just try to shape you to be a, a more authentic, uh, active human being. And I thought that was wonderful. Now, that you say you can find this in the Catholic Church, too. Yes, it wasn't either or. It's not one thing or the other. They, both faiths have, both traditions have much in common. Uh, I did not renounce Catholicism to do Zen. But I was encouraged to do something different from Catholicism that uh, had a very similar goal. As someone once said uh, about truth, you cannot take truth whole. Everyone, everyone has their own slant, their own way of looking at, at, at the truth. And, uh, for example, the Jesuits are largely involved in, in education and uh, other religious orders perhaps not so much, you know. So Zen didn't teach something absolutely new, but it taught something with a new slant, uh, a new practice, a new emphasis that appealed to me tremendously. So, and none of it contradicted yep. Catholicism. I mean, the, the Buddhists never mentioned Catholicism. And it almost seems like you're existing on two different axes. Like if you picture like a, a graph, you know, you're on the horizontal axis and on the, the vertical axis simultaneously, it seems. Well, yes, I think there is something about being what you might call multifaceted. That doesn't mean to be hypocritical. It just means that uh, there are different aspects to life, and both can be addressed fully. As a man, say, can be uh, uh, an American or a, a Chinese or a, uh, a Christian or a Buddhist or a, a father or a married man, a teacher. I mean... All these things uh, can be pursued simultaneously. And uh, so I think it's the multifaceted aspect that uh, I find uh, interesting here. So what did you realize when you realized that you could follow more than one spiritual path? Was it um, an exciting moment? Well, it was. It came to me uh, uh, just unasked for, unimagined, it was an experience of something you can say, well, you always knew this, uh, uh, that the world um, seems to exist on its own, as if there was no author. Uh, for example, a, have you noticed, one Zen teacher said, that the world, that nature uh, is never symmetrical. Uh, it just is, there's a thrownness about the world. Uh, like you take a handful of sand and toss it into the wind and it lands uh, haphazardly according to the various laws of the wind and, and so on. Uh, and this uh, st struck me with, uh, hit, struck me deeply and was one of the things that uh, uh, turned me to the practice of Zen. 
So I just finished reading one of your books, Zen Spirit, Christian Spirit. And in there, there is a really wonderful section that I latched on to. And I seem to understand that you're saying that Zen can help Christians eliminate preconceptions of what God is. Oh, yes. I mean, I think Zen helps us to see something that is, is uh, you say Catholics understand this too, it's a, we can only, when we speak about God, we are really uh, speaking about ourselves and our own capacity to understand uh, God. Um, whatever is learned is learned according to the ability and the capacity of the one who understands. Uh, so we are really looking inward, not just outward. And this is what our own poets say this, for example. John Ashbery uh, has a poem precisely on this. Uh, we, we seem to be looking outward at the, at the beauty of nature, but we're really looking inward. It is ourselves that we see, because we only see what we ourselves are able to see. And this is true about God. We talk about God, we just talk about our own capacity to understand uh, God. And therefore, it's limited. <clears throat> and, uh, and we have to accept that limitation and uh, be very careful when we talk about uh, God's will, for example. You know, uh, everyone has their own understanding of what that is, and we must be careful not to impose our limited understanding on others. Is this what you were referring to? Yeah, so it seems like it opens you up to real contemplation. Yes. Excellent. Yes, it, it turned me back to uh, a better understanding of myself and how um, I see what life has uh, brought me to see. It's uh, so in interesting. That sense, in that sense, uh, everything is really very subjective. I mean, there is an objective aspect to the world. We all, uh, you know, uh, see and judge the, the same world as we look about. But we, it's also intensely subjective. It's also seen intensely uh, as our own uh, vision an understanding of our own capacity to see. So I want to talk a little bit about your, um, it seems like you really enjoy Sashin. You talk a lot about Sashin within your writing, and in our very first conversation a month ago, you told me about how you were leading a Sashin. So then after you talked about that, I went and read your book, and you seem to be a very big proponent of Sashin practice, which is a form of extended Zen meditation. So... I'm curious right. if you can talk about what happens to the human mind on like the fifth straight day of 12 hours <laughs> per day of meditation in Sashin. Well, first of all, it, I think it's uh, a type of immersion, you might say. And sometimes uh, people who went to a, a corporation or the military or uh, uh, go, go on for a practice, there can be a, a period of uh, immersion of intense uh, uh, practice. Uh, that is very helpful, not just doing it perhaps haphazardly, but 
sit down for several days and really work at this and uh, uh, and practice it and do it and learn, for example, whether you wish to continue it at all. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a, a time of self-knowledge and uh, seeing in what specific direction you would like to to go in, what you need. And uh, so that's what a session is. It's not actually, it's not essential, but it is a great help. So what happens to the brain? Like what what goes on inside the human mind on like, uh, after like days of this? Well, uh, there's a lot of uh, the science of mindfulness that's very uh, popular today. And uh, I'm not a scientist. And uh, I would say that after a, a couple of days, the mind does quiet down and, uh, you quiet down and uh, um, you, you grow more attentive and uh, um, well I know that you just you listen led. more carefully you, you you move more carefully you eat more quietly you uh, uh, y- your whole person it's not just your mind that changes but your whole behavior uh, changes and uh, grows more attentive and uh, more open. Uh, normally, the mind is repetitious; it races on, and uh, it's not often that we allow really new ideas to come in. And a session is almost always done with a teacher or someone who has some experience, who can uh, encourage you, assist you if necessary, offer a word of uh, correction or advice. And so I know that you just led one, like, what, two weeks ago? Yes, I lead one almost every month. So how does your first uh, session many years ago compare to the most recent one? Like, how are you, uh, how do you experience this immersion differently these days? Well, my first session, you know, with your mother, I had no experience at all of of this session. And um, I think I had uh, grandiose ideas about what might happen. I think I was impatient that those grandiose ideas might uh, come to pass. I um, uh, was in a lot of pain. My back and my legs were hurting. And the uh, the head monk, the executive officer of the session, uh, was uh, on top of me for my uh, mistakes or my lack of experience, and uh, uh, that annoyed me. I was not ready for such personal, immediate criticism, no matter how much I deserved it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I liked it. And... Um, so that was in the beginning. I made all the mistakes of beginners. and uh, uh, Now I just think uh, all the people who have been sitting for a while were much more patient. Uh, we were able to sit uh, still for longer periods of time. Um, we have better control of our imagination and the random thoughts that uh, come through, you know, like so many wild horses. Yeah. And uh, more realistic about what uh, is possible. So um, many people enter, as I did, you know, uh, thinking that a great enlightenment would be just around the corner, and 
thinking in a very selfish, uh, self-centered way, you know, and gradually all that just fades away. So if um, so, a lot of Americans or Westerners have no idea what this means, but telling them that we sit for many, many hours for many days in a row, they might see capable, smart people doing supposedly nothing, and I'm doing nothing in air quotes, and they might think that that's a waste of time. So can you say how doing nothing and just sitting in session is actually very challenging and uh, it's actually done by very capable people? Well, nothing, remember, is... uh is a bad word. Uh, it doesn't translate the meaning of the Japanese. And nothing, we usually, like emptiness is another word that sort of we associate in a very negative sense, like being empty-headed or uh, nothing is just wasting your time. Uh, these words refer to uh, the capacity not to get caught in trivial thinking, uh, to put those these things aside and just pay attention to the present circumstances, to what the teacher is saying, or to what you're doing when you sit yourself. You know, it, it, it tries to clear the mind of uh, it, what they call fixations, these constant uh, repetitious patterns in the brain and repetitious habits that limit us severely. Uh, I remember, and was it uh, the story of Henry II and his wife, and the, you know Lawrence, not Lawrence O'Toole, Peter O'Toole, and Audrey Hepburn. You know, when she turned to him and said, "My great cross in life is knowing every thought you ever had." <laughs> and uh, often we catch ourselves repeating old stories. You know. And it's a little embarrassing when a friend says, yeah, we heard that. And uh, so to, to think of nothing means to put aside these fixations and, uh, and repetitious patterns that limit us. That's all. It's not that they're wrong necessarily, but they do limit us and make us far less interesting to our friends who have to put up with it. So it's very liberating. It is a liberating uh, uh, practice to put down things that I know and to open myself up to what perhaps I do not know. And uh, that is a great liberation. What is your And that is what Zen is all about. It is not religion in a Christian or Semitic sense of religion. It is to uh, take a chatterbox and quiet that chatterbox down and uh, teach him new skills about listening and being of service. And then the end of it all is to return to the world, to the the secular world, to the city, as an agent, an active agent of doing, uh, of being helpful, doing helpful things, living a helpful life, a sensitive, listening, compassionate, helpful life, human life. That is the goal of Zen. And Catholics can do this, and Protestants can do it, and Jews can do it. Anyone can do this. Uh, we could all use a good dose of Zen, I think. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, 
what what is your Zen lineage? Like, are you in uh, the Rinzai school or Soto? Like, where do you it's place Soto, yourself? Soto, basically Soto. But these distinctions that historically were important in Japan are not really important in America. Many of our teachers were recognized. They studied with them. Were recognized by uh, teachers of both lineages, gotcha. both uh, Rinzai and Soto. Practically speaking, I think they have very little. Uh, importance in American Zen today. So, do you practice Dokusan with your students? Uh, uh, Dokusan. Uh, well, you, we call it, you know, uh, we don't use that uh, word necessarily. But yes, I see them frequently. I mean, my door is open uh, three times a week. I sit with them every day and three times a week. Uh, if they indicate they would like to speak with me, I'm available to them. They just have to light the candle in the uh, the Dyson room, the the room where we have the interviews, and I know someone wants to see me, and I go in, and I'm there until they've all seen who want to see me. And I think that's important too. I have found it very encouraging in my own practice to work with my own teachers. Um, it's not a form of confession going to uh, these meetings with the teachers. It's more of a, a, a communion. And uh, I always felt uh, helped and understood and got sound direction from my teachers, and I try to do that for my own students. So how does Dokusan, um, which is kind of like a conversation between a Roshi and a student in Zen, how, yes. does, how does that help you out in your uh, confession practices as a Catholic Jesuit priest? Well, everything I've learned as a Zen person, as a practicing Zen, I believe has helped me to be a better human being, therefore a better Catholic and a better priest and a better Jesuit. Uh, the entire practice, I think, uh, would help anybody uh, to be what they want to be. Zen does not give you direction on what to do with your insight and your service of the world. Uh, that's up to you. It just makes you a more sensitive instrument so you do better what it is you choose to do. So there are some, quite a quite a bit of difference in uh, the beliefs of Buddhism versus Christianity. So I'm curious if you can talk briefly about how you rectify the soul versus no soul, the self versus no self, or the heaven versus no heaven. Like, how do you see those distinctions? Well, I don't emphasize these distinctions. Uh, I expect that there are and these uh, real differences, but the goal is not to argue about them uh, or to try to uh, convince the, your partner that they are wrong and you are right about something. Uh, the theories about the existence of the soul are not what this practice is about. The Buddha never taught, for example, that there is no self. He just just acted in a way that the self does not come up as, a, as an issue. You know, he never said, for example, there is no God. He just acted act as a good human being uh, on a horizontal plane. Uh, why would we argue with somebody about things that... Uh, uh, not to the point. Um, the point
point is to live a full, complete human life. For example, Pope, Pope Francis has said, we should not argue with atheists uh, because uh, frequently uh, they live a very good life and they are of service to humanity. And, uh, and that is what is important. Uh, we should work with them, cooperate with them uh, in what they're doing. Cooperate in all that we can that is not specifically opposed to our faith. So that's, gr- that's really interesting. Uh, I'm going to have to reflect on that quite a lot myself listening back to this conversation. Um, so 20 years ago, you appeared in a book called The Accidental Buddhist, written by, uh, yes. written by a man named Dinty W. Moore. Yes, yes. And in that, book, uh, in that book, you said that life is terrifying. Um, has your view on this changed in the last 20 years at all? Oh, what I meant by that, I don't mean that that's my complete definition of life. Because well, I, I agree with you in a lot of ways in that regard as well. I mean, I, uh, obviously life is wonderful, life is joyous and hopeful and all that. But there can be a, a naivete that does not realize that life can also be terrible. And it is hard to um, understand how a good and compassionate God's providence could allow such things. Uh, there is that terrifying aspect that shows up in literature. You know, for example, Melville's B- Billy Budd. Well, one second, please. Just a couple of minutes. This is an important phone call. No, it's okay. Go ahead. I'm, I'm doing the button. Oh, no. Oh, you're still doing the phone. Yeah, it's important. Okay. How about... Uh, That's fine. No, no, you're taking it. Half hour. Uh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, a, a workman just came in. I... Uh, uh, Yes, so terrifying in that sense. We can be more naive than need be. And uh, it is this terrifying aspect of life that uh, we have to attend to. For example, immigration. I, I saw a picture, you know, of the immigrants walking from Greece up to Germany. A man's there with his wife and three little children, and he doesn't know where he's going to sleep that night. He doesn't know where he's going to get dinner. He doesn't know where he's going to get water. Uh, you know, he. Uh, I thought that's a terrifying situation. You know, I. Uh, well, when I visited, uh, you know, Auschwitz-Birkenau with Bernie Glassman, you know, and saw what human beings are capable of doing to one another, there is this uh, terrifying aspect to life uh, that compels us to, uh, to try to bring some uh, peace to the world, some understanding, some respect for other people who might differ from us. You know? Right. Uh, uh, to take care of their needs. The great Jewish philosopher Levin has said that. But the first duty of a human being is to attend to the afflicted face of the one right in front of you. And when you've done that, then you can think your big thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. Then you can go and philosophize all you want. But attend to the afflicted face of the person in front of you. And uh, I thought of that. When I saw this man with his wife and little children, I wondered, uh, you know, when did they last have a meal? Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. Not knowing where they're going to end up. Um, I saw this especially from the man's point of view. You know, he's wants to care for his wife and children. You know, that's what men do. And he realized at that moment it's all completely out of his hands. I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah. Hmm. That makes a lot... I think that anybody can um, empathize and uh, think deeply about moments like that and look at the ways that their own ways in the world can inspire them to maybe think differently, maybe act a little differently, and address some of those situations of terrifying power. And I think maybe Zen would say to attend to these things with skill. I mean, do something about it. Uh, you know, confront a situation of immigration. Uh, find a just way that uh, we can accommodate people who are driven out on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the very basis of uh, of morality, you know, in the Jewish scriptures. Uh, where is your brother? When you come with your gift, you know, where is your sister? And, uh... Yeah. So, I have so many thoughts swirling in my head. Um, and I'm curious if you can... So let's let's back up for just a a, a tad, sure. just zoom Absolutely. out. And I'm curious if you can talk about what Asia can offer the West spirituality-wise if we uh, extend our view just a little bit um, as Westerners. Well. I mean, that's a big question. What are the, the gifts of Asia? I mean, uh, look at the, the rise of China and, uh, and India uh, and, and Japan. I mean, uh, great uh, civilizations. Uh, we can only be enriched by uh, cooperation and friendship with these people and uh, be willing to learn from them. What can we learn? Well, I, I, that would be... Uh, have to be worked out in, in the practice. You know, we can't decide that really ahead of time. Um, um, am I answering the, uh, yeah. the question? Or I, I don't mean to, to dodge it. I think we have everything to learn by a close, intimate sharing with these great civilizations of Asia. And it seems like we also have uh, the skill of looking inward to gain as well. Yes, yes, uh, to see our own limitations. Uh, as just as we have inadequate ideas about God, we have inadequate ideas about uh, about Asia. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, but I don't mean to tie uh, into any one. Uh, political aspect or political party or judgments made about uh, you know what to do 
I would say learn to listen to respect the other as other. You know, uh, not expect that they're going to. Um, for example, uh, is it possible to have a, a true Christianity in Asian traditions? Or must the Asians become Europeans before they can be Christian? Uh, this is a battle that's been going on for several centuries. You know, we, um, do they have to become Western in any sense in order to um, accept accept the gospel? The Christian gospel is based on a very practical uh, epistemology, a realistic epistemology. This is a sort of a crucial point. We know what Zen is now. It does not have a that realistic epistemology. It is we only know the other to just to the extent we're capable of it. It's really there for ourselves that we are learning about our own capacity to know. They're far less robust in making objective statements about the world or about revelation. So I think we have a lot to learn. We have to listen to Asia and see if the gospel of Christ can fit into the way they see the world. Beautiful. One of the great books on this, of course, is The Silence by Shusaku Endo about the German, about the uh, Jesuits uh, in Japan in the uh, early 17th century. And uh, one criticism of the Jesuits in that book in Japanese said, I don't think that you missionaries really understand Japan. I mean, you don't know what's possible here. You preach a gospel that uh, could not possibly fit into our uh, social and economic reality here. So we have much to learn. Sure. So and it comes through listening. It comes through listening and learning to listen, which is a skill after all. Indeed. And so based on top of that, so I work with teenagers every single day and teach religious studies to 18-year-old American young people. Yes. And... This is how I found you. This is my path in life that led us into this moment of having this conversation. And I'm curious if you can discuss why you think it's important for all people to study and learn about many religious and spiritual traditions. Why does uh, learning about something other than your own view matter? Well, it, it depends on, on individuals. I mean, I don't mean everyone has to go into study other faiths. For some people, that's, you know, maybe quite impossible. The opportunity of, of life don't lead them in, in that direction, you know. But I think we should learn all that we can uh, about them. But it's not just a learning about it. It has to be that uh, a sympathetic learning. But we see that uh, our way is not the only way. It might not be the only way for us. Another adjustment anyway might be very helpful to us. And um, 
I, I think it it, uh, it can only enrich us. Sometimes these problems come up in a very practical, immediate sense, like a, an interreligious marriage, um, or the acceptance of immigrants into our community. Um, it requires not just that we open our minds, but open our hearts to other people who are different. But from that difference, we can learn. I was just reading that many of the uh, great inventions of the world came from people who were product of uh, an inter-religious or in international upbringing. You know that. Uh, I don't know what can be proved in that, but it was an interesting idea that we have only to gain from an openness to other religions and other faiths. That they had their truth that was shaped by the conditions in their life. And they can't change that, really. But we can see that there is a truth there and embrace them and assist them to grow as they wish to grow. And that's exactly why I reached out to you, because since you live in these two traditions and you've been fully immersed in them for the past you know, many years, I wanted to hear your story and have you share your story with listeners on the podcast. And I'm really grateful to you today for spending this hour with me. And I'm so pleased that I wrote to you in the first place. Uh, listen, I'm very happy to happy to be in touch with you. I'm just looking at, as I said, at St. Peter's College, this Jesuit college. There are 54 languages spoken by the students. There's only 2,000 students here. It's a small college. There are 54 languages spoken. Uh, we have a special prayer room set aside for the, uh, the Muslim students. And uh, they're all living in peace and working uh, on their degree and learning the skills to, to get on with life, you know. Um, this is the way it should be. It, it's not a, a win-lose situation. It's a, an openness to the other that can enrich us all. I hope we talk again. Oh, yes. So Hope I meet you. You're always welcome here at St. Peter's and at Morning Stars Endo. I hope you come through and be our guest. Excellent. Thank you, Father Kennedy. This has been a lot of fun, and thanks it's for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Right. Bye-bye now. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.